stories, scripts, and conversations with creators. This is the Brave Maker Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Tony Gapastone with the Brave Maker Podcast, and I am recording this intro from one of my favorite places in all of the earth. Uh, second to Redwood City, second to maybe Hawaii and Italy, <laughs> but that would be Park City, Utah for the Sundance Film Festival. You know, the Sundance Film Festival is what I attribute to inspiring Brave Maker. It's the mutual love of film and story uh, that happens here and filmmakers, the, the artists who are making it, that happens here in Park City, Utah. So I'm right here. I'm at the Sundance TV headquarters right now. And I am doing an intro for episode 42. Episode 42 is with our correspondent, Irving Ruan. Uh, Irving is so cool because he's getting all these great conversations from his friends from the East Coast, specifically in New York, which is really cool. And today, no less, we have a really cool comedian and writer extraordinaire, someone who claims to have been doing stand-up since age nine, and her name is Claire Friedman. One of the coolest things is she's won a Peabody Award for writing on SNL, Saturday Night Live. So we have a great podcast for you, episode 42, with somebody who's been at 30 Rock in New York City. You're not going to want to miss this. Check it out. And stay tuned for this week from new episodes and conversations right here from Park City, Utah. I'm actually waiting for my next guest to come show up here in this free lounge that I'm hanging out in. And it is so good. I really am. I can't even believe I get to interview this really cool filmmaker. And I'm hoping that uh, it doesn't fall out uh, and he has to bail. <laughs> uh, but we'll see. So uh, stay tuned. Follow us on social media. Don't forget we're a 501c3 nonprofit. Your donations are what give us the ability to do this work, to create and mentor and support and elevate brave voices for diversity, inclusion, and justice. So thanks so much for listening. Enjoy uh, Irving and Claire. Attention filmmakers. Brave Maker screens films every month and we host an annual film festival. Submit your short films and features, narrative and documentaries on filmfreeway.com slash bravemakerfilmfest to be considered. Brave stories, brave makers, and brave conversations. Join us for our next monthly film screening and panel discussion. Tickets are available at bravemaker.com. Brave stories change the world. You are the story. Now back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Brave Maker podcast. Today, I have someone who's very special and who I'm very excited to interview. Um, her name is Claire Friedman. And a quick intro about her. Uh, she is a staff writer on Showtime's DeSouza Marrow. Previously, she wrote for Saturday Night, Live, Saturday Night Live, in which she won a Peabody Award for, as well as an Emmy nomination. Her comedy has been published in The New Yorker, McSweeney's, and The Harvard Lampoon. Claire was born and raised in New York City. She attended Hunter College High School, Harvard College, and Harvard Business School. Now she lives on the Upper West Side, where she spent her free afternoons wandering around 
Zabars in a full sweatsuit. Zabars. Uh, <laughs> I knew I was going to Very important. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you for that great in- introduction. I really appreciate it. <laughs> of course. I'm so excited to have you here. Now, obviously, I want to dive into so much of your work and your background and just your career transition, all of that. But in doing research for this, I stumbled upon a really interesting gem I thought we could start with, which is that apparently you started doing stand-up at the age of nine years old. Um, (laughs) Yeah, tell us more about that. How did that all happen? Sure. Uh, I mean, I grew up on the Upper West Side, so there's a long, rich history of comedy and stand-up comedy here. Uh, my parents are actually pretty funny people. And when I was a kid, I was always telling jokes. I like the types of jokes that maybe Catskills comedians would have told in the 1950s. Uh, I would hear them or read them online and I would repeat them. And my mom got a flyer in the mail for this talent show at Stand Up New York, which is a comedy club on 79th and Broadway. And she thought maybe I could do some sort of performance just because I liked get on getting on stage, um, though I don't really have that many skills. So we settled on stand-up comedy and I took <laughs> jokes and I ended up coming in second place in the talent show. So that was enough to keep me going down the comedy path, I guess. Wow. So at the age of nine, not only did you uh, score top ranks at, at this competition, <laughs> but you were totally not self-conscious at all on the stage telling jokes. I mean, like, was this part of your, I guess, upbringing or did you like at age nine just suddenly realize, oh, I think I'm going to do this? You know, it's funny. I feel like I was more uh, comfortable doing that sort of thing when I was nine than I am now. I mean, I've definitely transitioned more to writing behind the scenes stuff. But when I was a kid, I, I was just a little bit more fearless about getting getting on stage and talking to people. It was something that did not bother me for some reason. I have no idea how that's the case, you know? Yeah, that's so cool. I feel like there are definitely kids out there who get into theater at young ages. You know, I think theater has this sort of, uh, in my opinion, the safeguard where things are really scripted. There's confines with other people. But like doing scan, like being a solo performer at the age of nine, I think that's very, very rare. So um, I'm, I'm curious to hear, like, did your parents coach you through some of that experience you know early on like did they give you kind of encouragement like what do you think they did that kind of helped you become more comfortable and confident in that field yeah I mean I the way that I communicate with both of my parents is through jokes I mean we make a lot of jokes at dinner that sort of thing my my mom once said when we were a kid she's like I read that the Kennedys used to sit around the table and talk about foreign affairs and we just sit around the table and crack jokes all night so hopefully you all you all turn out all right <laughs> Um, it was more my mom who was involved in my stand-up comedy. My dad did not do much. My mom uh, used to take the subway home from work and write jokes on the subway and sort of give them to me. So she definitely helped me with the writing. And then also when I was nine, I'm going to be real with you, I didn't write all my material. So I would read jokes <laughs> in AOL uh, chain letters and that sort of thing. And I would just get on stage and tell them. I think there were a lot of dumb blonde jokes in my routines as well. <laughs> Um, I wasn't quite on the writing side yet. It was more focused on the delivery. Um, so yeah, I think I think my mom was very helpful in terms of finding jokes and uh, coming to all these shows, which you know happened on the weekends. Uh, working with me on that. I mean, for her, it was she was we all viewed it as a hobby for me. I don't think my mom ever hoped for me to go into a career of comedy, <laughs> but jokes on her. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I. 
so when I, when I was young, I definitely didn't have, I think, the same showman kind of, I think, attitude towards towards anything. So I'm curious, like, to hear, you know, as you, you know, started performing more and as you got into, like, middle school and high school, did you keep up sort of this comedy streak? Like, you talked about, you know, talking about jokes and all that in your family. Was this, did that continue or were there sort of brief moments when, like, you didn't really care so much about, like, telling jokes or comedy and all that? Yeah, I, I mean, I did keep doing stand-up all the way through graduating high school, um, though there were definitely times in there when I did not care to do it, and it was something that I sort of just kept doing. Um, I always liked comedy. I always was, you know, as a kid, I was obsessed with, you know, certain comedians and loved watching comedy movies and that sort of thing, so... It was something that I was always excited about. I wasn't sure that it was something that I wanted to pursue. And I anticipated that I would sort of stop with performing when I got to college. So it was something, though, that I kept up pretty consistently for the next nine years of my life. Yeah, that's that's so cool. So you must have had, I presume, like friends in school growing up who probably thought of you as like the funny person. Like, did you play that role with your friends or acquaintances? Yeah, I mean, it was like a combination because I was also a big nerd and very focused on schoolwork and homework. And so I think people thought that I would crack jokes, but I was never like I didn't misbehave in class. You know, I was very much of, I played by the rules in a lot of things, which you wouldn't necessarily think of a comedian. Right. Um, so, I mean, there's definitely that dichotomy there though. I actually found my sixth grade yearbook recently and I was voted. They said they had like career predictions and mine in sixth grade was that I would run comedy central one day. So that was funny. Wow. <laughs> Which is also way bolder than what is happening for me. But I appreciate that the 12 year old in my class had so much faith in my ability back then. Wow. That is, uh, that is not only very big, like goal that I think a lot of people want to do, but it's also very specific, like comedy central. Like yeah. I just remember growing up, I don't know what, what age back in, but I remember for me, like growing up on adult swim, like that was a thing, you know, comedy central, like those were like really big for me in terms of comedy. And like, not only is that so specific, but there's like a really interesting phrasing there, which is like run comedy central. I know. Um, did that, I mean, what did that mean to you at the time? Was that like something where you would be more on the business operation side or like actually like you just be a big star comedian on comedy central? <laughs> Honestly, I don't think it meant much to me when I was 12. I just thought I, whoever came up with it, I don't know which kid in my class came up with it, but it's almost like prescient because I ended up going to business school and and working on the operation side of entertainment for a little while before I ended up pursuing writing primarily full time. And so in a way, you would think, oh, some kid was just like, oh, she does stand up comedy. She'll work at Comedy Central one day. But yeah, like you said, I mean, I guess maybe I came across as like uh, ambitious, maybe <laughs> a little too ambitious uh, for somebody to come up with that. But yeah, it's definitely a funny choice of words running instead of just, you know, working at or working on comedy for. So for sure. Yeah. And I think this, this segues into uh, an area that I'm very interested in, which is you went to business school, which, um, to my understanding is not something a lot of comedians and comedy writers do. I think that's a very, it is uh, not. Rare, yeah. <laughs> I don't think comedians for good, with good reason. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And 
that must have been a fairly, I would, I would think, interesting choice that you made post college. I mean, obviously, you had a knack for comedy growing up. You, uh, you were writing for the Harvard Lampoon, which is, uh, you know, pretty much writing comedy. When you graduated, what made you decide to pursue business school instead of, you know, I guess continue or trying to do comedy full time? What was that decision process like? I mean, <clears throat> it's a good question. I I always knew I wanted to be a comedy writer, and yet when I graduated from college, I went to work in investment banking for quite some time. I think it's just a combination of being generally risk averse. So seeing what the career trajectory looked like for some of my friends on the lampoon, like many of them have gone on to be very successful comedy writers, but it took them some time. They were struggling to earn income and, you know, they spend a lot of their twenties looking for jobs. Um, and also 50% of my graduating class went into investment banking and consulting. So it was very much a like, Oh, I guess this is what I should do. I was an economics major in college and, um, it just seemed like, you know, such a surefire career. Ironically, I started in the mortgages division in 2007. Oh, wow. And trying to avoid the risk of comedy, I ended up working in quite possibly the riskiest uh, job that you could possibly have in 2007. Uh, but I ended up, you know, sticking it out for a while and thinking, you know, at that point that maybe what I would ultimately end up doing is pursue the business side of entertainment and that this would sort of lead to that path. So that was sort of where my mind was at that time and why I ended up going to business school. Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners can uh, really connect with that. I think, you know, going into the arts and any sort of uh, discipline is very risky and, you know, comedy certainly included. When you were you know, as, as you left school, obviously you had this, uh, training already behind you, which is growing up doing, doing standup around New York, but also writing, you know, I think in certainly a, a very rigorous discipline focused setting at the Lampoon, um, help us like understand like what that training process was like when you're working with a bunch of other writers at the Lampoon, like what was like a day to day? Like, how did you, I guess, get feedback as a writer, which I think a lot of writers certainly struggle with. Yeah. I mean, one thing about the lampoon is that the process for getting onto it involves just endless rejection. So you apply and apply. Most people apply three times before they get accepted. And the process of applying is just writing tons and tons of sort of short prose comedy pieces. Um, so even just the process of trying to get on the lampoon is very instructive in terms of getting comfortable with being rejected, getting comfortable with killing jokes quickly if they're not going over well you bring your pieces in and get feedback on it and all of that sort of removes the ego in the comedy writing process and just lets you focus on like what is the funniest what will have the best response when you know 20 other people read it and are judging this for whether or not it's funny um and then sort of the same thing once you're on the lampoon some of it is collaborative and some of it is still just writing written pieces for the magazine and you just get very comfortable with the idea of rejection. I think that's probably the main thing. You need really a thick skin in this yeah. career. I'm sure anybody who's ever tried their hand at writing comedy pieces has gotten a lot of bad feedback. Even if they're the greatest comedy writer, they're going to get rejected time after time. And they're going to get 
Some people will think that their shit is funny. Sorry, I don't know if I can curse. And some people will <laughs> Go think, ahead, yeah. <laughs> and some people will think it sucks. And, you know, just getting comfortable with the fact and not letting yourself get, you know, torn down by that type of feedback is really important. So that was something I felt like I really got out of my time on a lampoon. Because it's a hard, it's a, you know, people there are critical. <laughs> right. Not I, pretend if you're, you know, if your stuff is not good. Definitely. I've, I've certainly heard of uh, anecdotes and stories about how, how I think brutal the feedback can be and just how cutthroat it can be. And I'm wondering, like, was there any particular uh, piece or something that you wrote for the Lampoon in which you got some of the most maybe amazing feedback that you could remember at your time there? And why was it helpful or instrumental or insightful, uh, in your opinion? I'm trying to remember if I can think of anything specific. It's, it's it was a long time ago at this point. <laughs> a lot of alcohol involved in that post few years. So, um, I mean, I did remember I had this piece once that I wrote that was called like the mind of a criminal, and it was like what you see, and it was like something that you might see, and then what a criminal sees, and it was probably ten entries, and the. I submitted it for um, this guy, Andre Nikita. He had an issue that he was like overseeing and he deleted everything except for one entry and published that one entry that he liked. And then everybody loved that one entry. So they didn't see all the crap, you know, all the bad entries that the editor (laughs) had just removed. They just saw this one entry and they're like, oh my God, this is such a funny, brilliant thing. So just like, I remember getting the help of, you know, the editor in that sense in terms of like seeing the best piece and realizing like oh this would be very funny as like a standalone phrase in the issue and so that that was very memorable for me yeah did it sort of uh, i guess uh bruise your ego a little bit to see how there was a decent chunk of that stuff that was cut or at that point you had already developed sort of this uh confidence and immune system against all that cutting it probably would have bruised my ego if I hadn't felt like the person who was making that decision was such a funny writer himself, you know, and, and I immediately, when I saw it, it was like this aha moment. I was like, yep, you're right. So it didn't, of course you don't want your stuff cut or you don't want your jokes cut. But in terms of like the learning process for me, I was happy with the outcome. And then it's, you know, it's between me and him. Nobody else knows what was cut there other than now anybody who would listen to this podcast, but you sort of have this, like safety net when you're working with a good editor who, uh, you know, they'll remove the worst stuff and they protect you from some of that, you know, they save you from your worst jokes, which is, you know, something to appreciate. Totally. I I think we can both probably empathize very strongly with, with aspects of that. And so I think with that, one thing that has been clear is, you know, obviously you got a lot of training and real practice and you sort of cut your, your teeth pretty, Pretty well, it you know in the lampoon, but afterwards, you know, you went into you know the real world, right? You uh, you you went into a field that's very different from comedy. Did you still get opportunities? Like, did you still have that itch to write on the side, or were you just fully, I guess, consumed with work for the next few years? I mean, for the first few years when I was in finance, I wasn't doing that much writing, but I was trying to do stand-up comedy. So I actually got back into doing a bit of stand-up and I would do open mics like around after work around 11 p.m., you know, around the city. And that for me, like open mics, I don't know if you've ever done stand-up or done open mics. They're just sad, soulless places where you're like hopes and dreams go to die. 
But for me, coming from the world of investment banking and really the world of the mortgage crisis, even just having the opportunity to get on stage and try out new material and with no plans for it to go anywhere, lead to anything was almost just like a fun release for me at that time. Um, but I wasn't really focused on like screenwriting or anything for those couple of years. I can definitely uh, relate with uh, some of that. I mean, uh, with I think the full time job that I've had, I think when I was doing stand up a lot more, not so much now, but it was just sort of just, you know, having fun going to open mics is so low stakes. And it was just a way to get steam off the chest. And I think um, it's I think it's one thing, you know, how people say like people should do more like improv comedy, like it's becoming really in vogue nowadays. I feel like stand up in a way is like another form, in my opinion, of like modern therapy for people in jobs in which like they're feeling stressed out or whatever. It's just like a great way to, I don't know, get that off your chest. And it's cool to hear that you were doing that sort of as this outlet while you were, I guess, in the mortgage crisis. I don't know if that's yeah, true. no, I would no, I agree with you on your therapy point, though. I def- definitely caution stand-up comedians against using it as their only therapy because many of the people who I did see perform definitely also required therapy on the side. So, but yeah, a lot, you hear a lot about people's problems and it's very, uh, very interesting. Yeah. So you were uh, not so much writing at the time, but you were performing. Now, before you uh, made the decision to go to B-School, was that the time that you were thinking about, okay, I've always had this love of writing comedy. I've been doing it for a long time in my life. But uh, I'm thinking about working kind of in the business side of the entertainment slash comedy industry. Before you went into B-School, did you already sort of know that? Or did that sort of emerge naturally as this idea as you were going through uh, schooling itself. So I actually took about five months between investment banking and B school to write. And I took some sketch writing class at the UCB and I worked, started working on a pilot that I was talking to a producer about. And I thought, you know, like I had already been accepted into business school and I thought, Oh, maybe I can get something off the ground on the writing side. And then if I don't in those few months, then I'm going to go to business school and what became it what became very clear to me in that time was it takes not 5 months but many years in order to get a writing career off the ground so um when you know september rolled around and it was time to go to school i realized that it was probably still a good idea unless i was willing to completely put the business career aside and 100% focus on writing that going to business school would be the right move for me um i wasn't in a place even yet at that point where I felt comfortable fully giving up the safety and security. So it was still something I wanted to do when I was writing and I wanted to do the creative thing, but I was also still a little bit nervous about what exactly that meant in terms of what I'd have to give up. Right. Especially after, you know, the friends that uh, you saw, you know, from your class, like pursuing comedy full time, I'm sure you probably picked up on how how real, really, you know, difficult, it can be. And I, I think definitely when people see friends struggling in that area, definitely, I think they can put a bad aftertaste in, in the mouth about that. When you, uh, you know, after you graduated from B school, did you feel a bit more secure at that point to want to pursue writing more? Or was that the point where, you know what, I'm going to go more like full steam into like the business side of things? So <clears throat> after business school, I thought, um, okay, well, this is a pretty good insurance plan if I try to do something creative and it doesn't work out. 
And so what I ended up doing at that point was I, I talked to a lot of people. I used my two years in business school to talk to a lot of people who work in entertainment, both on the creative side and on the executive side, both on the business exec side and the creative exec side. And I sort of thought, you know, maybe being a development exec is some place is a career that sort of brings together my desire to be involved in the creative, but also isn't com- completely creative. You know, you're still working at an office and it's still like sort of a, a more secure day to day job. So I actually, after business school, went out to L.A. and became an assistant to the president of FX Networks. And so you know, after many years of banking and getting an MBA, I went and became somebody's assistant, which felt like a pretty big shift for me. Sure. Um, but it was such an amazing way for me to learn about the creative side of the industry and sort of everything that you need to know as a writer on the television side. Wait, sorry, once I have to cough again. <coughs> You're catching me coming off of a cold that everyone in New York oh, City... No. Yeah, so. Oh, no. Well, we'll de- we can definitely edit out the cough yeah, unless that's you want the cough to be back in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, um, no. Edit out the cough, please. <laughs> Keep the full raspiness of my voice, but yeah. Sure. <laughs> uh, so when you moved out to L.A. and you uh, started doing that, what were some of the most eye-opening, uh, I guess, things you learned about that experience that maybe going into, like, you had these expectations or assumptions and all of a sudden, you know, uh, completely it was not true. Yeah. I mean, one of the most humbling things you learn when you're working in development is just how many people are trying to make it as writers. So it's like every day, every network is receiving dozens of scripts and a lot of them are very good. And you just see what the odds are in terms of, I mean, you can, you hear about, you know, the chances of a show making it on the air if you look at the funnel, it's like, okay, a thousand scripts get, you know, written and then, you know, the network will buy 15 and 10 go through development and five become pilots. And then one becomes a tell two become a television show. And then one makes it past the first season. And the odds are just, you know, they're not in your favor. So it, but it's, so it's very humbling as a writer to see that from the development side, to see the process of, where your material is actually going and how it's being considered. And so um, always at that point thinking maybe there was always that it, that voice in the back of my head that was like, well, maybe one day I'll write. I was, I was paying close attention to that when I was working at FX because I thought that that was so interesting. I didn't realize just how many scripts these, you know, people were getting on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I think those numbers are definitely eye-opening and revealing. And I, I think, you know, certainly someone like myself who, who doesn't exist or live in that world, um, definitely, like, you know, putting that into perspective is really helpful. And I think the closest analog I can think of is, like, for me, like, working in Silicon Valley, it's, like, a very similar numbers game where, like, a lot of people come out to San Francisco hoping to start, you know, uh, their own startup and to, you know, hit a big like Airbnb or Uber, you know, or all, a lot of these hot startups. And the reality is that it's very similar. Like for every 1000 startups that come through the Valley, like only a very few actually end up either getting acquired or IPOing. And it's a, it's a very, it's very humbling for sure. So uh, it's, interesting to hear how that also happens in the entertainment industry, even though for some reason I had imagined, oh, there'd be a lot more 
success because of like things like Netflix or Hulu, you know, all these like streaming services. Like, do you feel that num- those numbers might shift in the next few years because of all these streaming services? Or do you think that still like it's going to be really cutthroat um, going forward? I mean, I think that there's, it's true that the number of buyers has increased and the streaming services are buying more. I think that that has two impacts though. One, more people are now trying to write. So yes, they're buying more shows, but that's also encouraging more people to enter the market. So I think the the barriers to entry as it enter as a TV writer used to be a lot lower. Now with Twitter and like other ways that people can get their name known, you don't necessarily need an agent to bring your scripts in. So there's more people out there trying to fill those more spots, even though they're undeniably more shows being bought. And then the other main thing that people talk about in terms of uh, like the TV business getting better for writers is that there are more shows being made, but they have fewer episodes. So whereas a TV writer used to be hired onto a 26 episode a year show and sort of be gainfully employed for the year. Now people get hired on eight or 10 episode show and it's, you know, they're spending more of the year looking for more jobs or more of the year unemployed. So their annual salary might actually be lower now, even though there are more shows on the air because they're not doing as many episodes. Yeah, that's a very illuminating um, picture. And I think, again, it's like one of those things where I think people who are on the outside of this industry, like people like me have this very naive view of like, oh, more streaming services. Like it's all going to be great, like more opportunities. But, you know, and it's always it is more opportunities for sure. Yeah, but the picture definitely uh, can be a bit more complex and, and nuanced in, yeah. in that way. When you were working, you know, uh, at FX, uh, on the side, did you, I guess, uh, re-kickstart kind of, you know, all that writing and everything again? Or were you still no, just like focus on, yeah. I completely did, even though I felt like a huge Hollywood cliche, you know, everybody in, in LA has a script. I was, but it's also fun. I mean, it was, for me, as somebody who loves TV and loves entertainment, instead of like rolling my eyes at every coffee shop with hundreds of writers and actors and performers, I sort of embraced it because that was why I wanted to be in LA. You know, growing up in New York, there's plenty of people who work in television or comedy, but it's not the same. It's not all immersive like it is in LA. So once I got to LA, I felt like oh, everybody can be working on a script. I didn't have to pretend, you know, that I was just a business person or anything like that. It was totally acceptable to be writing. And you just also have so many people who can read things for you and give you notes and like writers groups and all that other stuff. So while I was working there and, you know, while I was spending time in LA, I was very focused at that point on writing and learning as much as I can. And also just reading scripts every day, which is sort of what you do as a development assistant. Uh, is inspiring in terms of feeling like, oh, I could be doing this. Like I, it's not as mystifying anymore. Once you've read, you know, 300 pilots, you think I get it. I could do that. Totally. And, and when you were in LA, obviously you, you know, you grew up on the East coast and LA sort of like is entertainment town, you know, being sort of a fish out of the water and moving there for the first time. How did you, I guess, you know, reach out and connect to people out there, you know, in terms of like writing opportunities and everything, like walk us through like how you approach sort of like this really big universe of challenges. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, I was a bit lucky um, because I had so many friends from the Lampoon who were living in LA who had sort of done that before me. So it was nice to come out and have that group of friends from college already there. But in terms of meeting non-writers, which I mean, as a writer, 
knowing other writers is great, but what you really want to know is network executives and buyers and agents and managers. So for me, that sort of came through working as an assistant because when you're an assistant, you just get the lay of the land. It's so clearly, uh, you're just in a place where you get so much information. You see who the key writers are, the key directors are, you know, the top agents who are calling the office and you are trying to meet everybody's assistants because the idea is you are all assistants together and you're, you know, networking and sharing information. And then you all sort of rise up through the industry together. And that's even just a few years later, I've seen that to completely be the case. Like all the people who I was assistants with are now executives across Hollywood. Um, so whenever people ask me about sort of breaking into the industry, I mean, it's non-traditional. Everything I've done is not traditional. So I wouldn't necessarily say like, this is the way to do anything. Not all writers start out as development ex- assistants, you know, in fact, most do not, but I tend to recommend that as a path for people trying to break in because you will gain so many skills and such a big network that will be invaluable to you as you pursue your writing career. Um, so yeah, that, that tend that in my mind, and obviously that's what worked for me. So it's easy for me to say other people do that, but I found that to be very effective in terms of um, having a platform to reach out to people, you know, it's very easy to network when you're coming from a position of, you know, being part of the system, even if your role in the system is just as a PA or as an assistant someplace, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's incredibly useful advice. And I would think, you know, I would go in so far to suggest that's probably uh, much more useful to be in that role than working in mortgages, I think, yeah. you know, trying to, trying to break into that. Yeah. So, yeah. And so uh, tell us a bit more about, you know, your, you, how long were you at FX for? So I was actually only at FX for a year. And then I ended up having an opportunity to switch over to an executive role and sort of the production side. And so I did that thinking, you know, so I liked the development exec, but as you can hear from my like story that I was actually very interested in writing still, I thought maybe production would be, would better suit me. So I tried production for a year and I worked in, um, I worked on a show called Lip Sync Battle, which is a comedy variety, like a, you know, reality show and worked on the MTV Movie Awards and was sort of working in that space. Um, event programming. And then after that, I sort of had this realization and probably because I was turning 30, you know, (laughs) like I really, if I want to be a writer, I have to do it now or I will never do it. Like, because every time I was trying to write, people still always saw me for whatever my title was in my day job. And I, that was the case when I was in business for sure. And it was the case when I was in production and it was the case when I was in development unless you are fully unemployed day to day spending all of your time writing it's very hard for people to see you as a writer and so I finally was made the decision that I was going to forego income for a period of time and try to purely write and that was sort of what I would say is like the big leap in my career where I decided you know I got to do this or I will regret it. And if I haven't made it in a couple of years, I'll just go back and I'll just get a normal job. So. Wow. Yeah. I 
definitely have like a thousand different responses to that. And one for sure, like I'm turning 30 this year. So I think I can definitely connect on that part. Um, but you know, making that switch over, right. As people often say, like leaving a job, pursuing an, an artistic field full time, obviously it's very, very risky. And, and just challenging in general, right? Not to have those structures in place. When you kind of started that sort of um, what I would probably call Claire's wilderness years or whatever <laughs> we want to call it, um, did you kind of set, like, were there any systems or processes you kind of set into place or maybe like a frame where you said, hey, you know what? I'm going to give this a shot for a year. If I'm going to time box this, if it doesn't work after a year, I'm going to go do this. Or were there specific goals like TV shows you want to write for or whatever that you set out? Like walk us through kind of your process for thinking about that? Yeah. I mean, for the first time in my life, my goal was not specific. It was very much to like, see if I can earn income from words I have written within the next two years, you know? And so I was pursuing every possible thing. Um, that was when I was writing, you know, I would write pilots. I was writing screenplays. I submitted a packet for Saturday Night Live, which is how I ended up writing there. I was, you know, writing jokes for comedians and getting paid to write jokes for comedians. Um, I was doing stand-up again. I, you know, I was trying to pursue every possible way to see what would work. And that was also when the beginning, as you mentioned at the beginning in, in my bio, the beginning of my sweatpants phase, I started, <laughs> you know, writing from home. I was treating my days at home like normal work days. You know, I like to write early in the morning. So I would write from, you know, eight to noon, go for a walk on the Upper West Side, come home, have lunch, come home, write for a few more hours, like treating it like a job in that sense. But I wasn't thinking, you know. I really wanted to be staffed on X show by the end of the year. I was just like, and I was applying for shows and trying to do that whole thing too. But I really just wanted any one thing to work out to show that I could maybe make this work. And I think that I ha I hear people say like, oh, I want to go to LA, but I would only want to write for these shows and I wouldn't want to write for these shows. And I'm just like... Oh, honey, you do not get to pick your career like that, unfortunately. <laughs> like, that is not how this business works. So you, I think it's really about being open-minded and being open. Like, If somebody can pay you for words you write, no matter what it is, you're winning if your goal is to be a writer. So that was the attitude I sort of went into it with. Yeah, I think that's a really healthy attitude because I think oftentimes we can develop certainly unrealistic expectations. I know certainly in the age of social media, like we see like, oh, this person is like doing this specific thing. Like I want to do that. And if I don't do that, then I don't think I'll do anything. And so I think to cast the wide net and like understand the reality of the game is very, I think, a healthy mindset. And one thing, too, I've been thinking a lot about, I think your point that made me think is, you know, I've had a few friends who also started writing comedy in the past few years, but a lot of them have sort of stopped slash given up. And I think what I've detected is that I think, you know, what was really cool about your style was that you approached it like a professional job. Like it wasn't one of those things where like, oh, I'll just write whenever the muse strikes, right? Which yeah. is like this common romantic idea. And I think, you know, people who think like, oh, I mean, it's like, the way I'll put it is I think it's perfectly okay if like you want to write jokes for like your own blog, but like to consider 
what it takes to be like a professional writer. Like you're going to get tired. It's going to be hard. Um, there are going to be days in which you don't want to do it, but like, that's what it takes. And I'm curious to hear, like, as you were going through your wilderness years, you know, like writing the mornings and, you know, writing the afternoons, like what were some things that you did to kind of keep yourself, I guess, sane and motivated? Because I'm sure it must've been pretty hard to, you know, go through that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I'm going to botch this quote, but that quote that's like, you know, half of luck is showing up when you're writing comedy so much of you're going to write so many bad things. But if you're not always writing, the good things will never be produced. So instead of waiting, I don't ascribe to the waiting for the muse to hit attitude, especially because TV writing is a job. You show up every day. You always have to have ideas when you're writing for SNL, it doesn't matter if you an idea strikes you that day. You must show up and generate comedy content. So to get in that mindset of, you know, when you have the job, you have to show up and come up with jokes. You know, training yourself to spend every day writing, even if you're not feeling funny, even if you know you're not in a good mood, is a very valuable skill. So those days when I was struggling or feeling like nothing was happening or whatever. I would still try to write something, even if it was terrible, and just throw it out. Because you never know if like one seed of an idea that you write on one bad day is something that when you're having a good day, you can develop into a Shouts and Murmurs piece or something like that. So I did find that it was very... And also, you just think of it, you take it seriously, you know, if you make yourself think about it like that. Um, Look, if you're going to give up income (laughs) to try to make something like this happen it's a big risk and I wanted to just you know increase the chances of it working out and you also mentioned something about comparing yourself to other people on social media and to that I'll just say I really do not do that much on social media and I try to avoid Twitter and this is actually the first year that I've ever even looked at Twitter and even just going on it rarely because I need to find stories for Jesus and Marrow um, it drives me crazy with, you know, jealousy and no matter how successful you are, you're looking at other people's Twitter bios and seeing what they're up to and comparing yourself. And it's so unhealthy and bad. I, I know that a lot of comedy writers and young comedy writers want to come up on Twitter and it's like an easy way to get, not easy, but you know, it's a way to get seen, but it's honestly, I think it's so bad for mental health. It's, yeah. It can't be good for anybody. And I would strongly encourage comedy writers to find other ways to write and pursue their craft outside of Twitter, because man, that just messes with your mind. Totally. Totally. I can so relate with that. And I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think for listeners out there who don't know Claire, uh, one of my favorite pieces that Claire has written is called, uh, you know, deleting and, and installing Instagram, the vicious cycle. She, it's in the New Yorker. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. But um, I think that kind of mood captures so much of about certainly my relationship with social media. I think a lot of other people too, which is is exactly that. And I think you know, to your point, I think the the crux of it is like just showing up and like doing the work, right? Like, yeah, people may get noticed like on you know TikTok or Instagram or Twitter and everything, but I think nothing will really substitute like just like plopping your ass down at the desk every day and just like writing jokes, even if they're bad and like trying to write TV pilots or whatever that may be that, you know, you're trying to do. And I think, I think social media sort of create this illusion that we can skate by and like do great stuff without actually like putting in the work, which I, I personally believe is not 
necessarily true. So um, thank you for speaking that truth. Right. No, I think that's 100 percent right. I mean, I think social media does create that illusion that, you know, if you get a couple of quick one liners out there that, you know, you'll be able to make it work. And for some people, God bless them, that does work out. But, you know, it's also nice to have a portfolio of long form content, especially if that's, you know, where you're trying to go. For sure. I wanted to uh, segue into something which I think you uh, just mentioned, which is uh, SNL. And obviously, for anyone who doesn't know what SNL is, um, I think you've been living under a rock. So uh, please, we'll have a link to the Wikipedia page for SNL for people who don't know what that is. But um, I'm curious, like the process of working on that show and uh, one of the sketches I believe that you had worked on was the This Is Us parody. Um, and called This Is U.S., which I believe stands for United States. Yeah, uh, <laughs> good guess. I, I would love to use that as an example to kind of like understand what the process is like. So when that sketch came into production, obviously it was super funny, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes, but can you walk us through like how that went from you know, idea and conception to execution, like how, how that looked like. Um, I think for people out there who know nothing about the creative process SNL, I think it'd be super cool to know. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the nice thing about the SNL week is that it's very standardized. So, um, the way that I'll tell you that this idea sort of came to be and became a sketch on TV is true for many, many, many of the sketches you will see on Saturday night live. So Monday, um, we start off the week with a pitch session to the host. And so the week that the This Is U.S. sketch, that I wrote the This Is U.S. sketch, um, Sterling K. Brown, who is one of the stars of This Is Us on NBC, was uh, hosting the show. And so I came in, and sometimes, you know, I mean, SNL obviously has a lot of topical comedy. And so I had been looking at the news that morning and I saw some article about Ben Carson and this like $20,000 desk he had. I mean, he had, this was a time when he'd been in the news a lot for his, you know, things at HUD. And so I think I, I don't remember exactly what I pitched to Sterling K Brown in the Monday meeting, but it was something about him playing Ben Carson. And, and then I feel, I feel like after the show, after the pitch meeting, you know, most of the time you hear nothing, but sometimes a producer will text you or email you and say, oh, yeah, there might be something to him as Ben Carson. Like, if you can think of a good sketch for that, think of that. So I thought, OK, maybe I'm on the right track here, you know. <laughs> um, and so on Tuesday, uh, which is the writer's day, basically, you show up and you just write sketches. And on my walk to work, I was thinking, you know, like, this is us. That's his show. Ben Carson. Hey, you know, what about if I do a This Is U.S. where he plays Ben Carson? We have the SNL world of characters, you know, AD and Sarah Huckabee Sanders and all the people who, you know, you have seen in the cold opens. And when I got to work, I sort of started writing that and, you know, talking to some of the head writers and producers about um, about that idea. And people seemed interested. And so I ended up writing it Tuesday night. You stay up all night writing. And then on Wednesday you have um, the table read. So all the sketches that have been submitted for the week, the cast and the host sit around the table and read all the sketches out loud. And uh, they read the This Is U.S. sketch that I had written, and it went over well. And so that night, I got a text, you know, they choose the sketches that are going to be on the air, and I saw that that was one of the ones that was picked. And so since it was a taped sketch and not a live sketch, I was assigned a director, and then on 
Thursday and Friday, we end up filming the sketch. So it's a pretty quick turnover. You're basically filming this little movie, you know, in two days, editing it. And then, and you're not out of the woods yet, even though your sketch has been picked, that doesn't mean it's going to go on television. So then the sketch airs in the dress rehearsal. It's actually nice. It's really hard to have a tape sketch during the week because you don't sleep very much. But <laughs> the nice thing is during dress rehearsal, once it airs, it airs, you know, you're not changing things anymore that much up to the last minute. Um, and so then after dress rehearsal went very well in dress rehearsal, when the, when the like joke, the first joke came on screen, everybody laughed. And so that's usually a good sign when people are laughing. Yeah. It ended up staying in the show between dress and air. You, you make a couple of little edits and that sort of thing. But yeah, that's pretty much the process for how these film sketches end up in the show. Wow, I just feel already so nervous thinking about how intense that whole thing is. <laughs> I, I mean, like for me, when I'm editing stuff, like I feel like I need like, you know, two years to edit. But like when I, when I think about that process, like writing Tuesday and staying up late doing it and then like having people read on Wednesday and then going into that, I mean, that's a really, really fast turnaround. Like how did you, I guess, were there any things, like any tips or tricks that you did to kind of like really hone down your editing where like, okay, I, I only have like a day or even maybe even shorter to like make my mark with this sketch. Like, how do you know when you can be confident, like anything that you develop, like any tips or tricks in that area? Oh my God, you can never be confident. It's literally just like <laughs> when the minute that it needs to happen. I mean, that's like what Lauren says. The show doesn't go on at 1130 because it's ready. It goes on because it's 1130, you know? That's the thing with a live show. You could continue to change your sketches ad nauseum, but eventually, within a very short period of time, it's going to have to go to the table. It's going to have to go on television. And so that there's, you know, it's sort of just about not thinking about it, honestly. Uh, you just have to accept that it is what it is. I also am the type of person who likes to spend a lot of time thinking about things, I like to mull things over. If I have an idea, I want to go for a walk for an hour or two and really think about it. And then a couple of days later, another really jo good joke will pop up in my mind. And that all goes out the window at SNL. It's like you just get that very short time frame and you just need to get comfortable with like banging it out in a very short time frame. Yeah. And I think for people out there who, um, you know, a lot of people probably have thought about, you know, writing or wanting to, to write for SNL. And I think, um, it always seems like, oh, it'd be so great. But then like actually hearing about the reality of the process, like it's like, I, I feel really anxious just like thinking about that right now, like the whole process, because it is like incredibly intense. And I think for a lot of writers out there, you know, working under pressure and everything, it can be really hard, especially, you know, for writers who are a bit more on the shy side or introverted. So um, I'm glad you made it out alive. Uh, I hear it's Thank really Thank you positive. so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so after, after SNL, um, did you then decide, okay, I want to continue writing for TV or did you kind of take a reset or pause and consider like what else you want to do in that regard? Well, I definitely wanted to continue writing for TV um, in a slightly less stressful job. Uh, <laughs> but actually that's when I also started writing for The New Yorker. Um, the thing with SNL is that, you know, ultimately, and the tr this is true of any television show, you're writing for the voice of the show you're a staff writer in a room full of writers and things get changed throughout the week in ways that you may not be happy with. And that's just true of writing on a television show. And 
I was missing my time at the Lampoon when my true voice or the things that I really loved could get published and it would have my byline on it and I could stand behind it and be like, this is 100% like authentically my sensibility. And so after SNL, I thought, you know what, I, I want to start submitting comedy pieces, writing comedy pieces again. And so that was when I wrote the Instagram piece and I ended up sending it to the New Yorker and they bought it. And that was very encouraging for me. Um, and I felt really good being able to put those pieces out there because like I said, like at SNL, sure, like occasionally people will promote a piece that they wrote, but for the most part, I, you know, of the sketches that I wrote, I didn't post them on Twitter. I didn't share them on social media. Um, I wasn't really taking credit. It's a collaborative environment in a lot of ways. So it was fun to have something and be like, look, this is me. This is something that I have like my name attached to, especially since I'm not doing stand up anymore, which is another good outlet for that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, uh, that's a really cool thing, which I think, you know, right now I'm seeing some writers who uh, came up on very different, like, you know, past, which is like, they didn't start working on a show. Like they started doing their own, like, sketch show like at UCB or whatever and like it's all their voice and I think that's a great thing to develop whereas if you get straight into a show you may not actually know like what your voice is so it's cool to hear like you were able to I don't know chart out that path for yourself and rediscover I think aspects I mean I um, think that that's, actually, yeah. that's a really smart point because when I was at SNL it was my first writing job and I think one of my biggest mistakes there was trying to I lost my own voice a little bit um, and I tried to give them things that I thought were right for the show. And, um, and that hurt me, I think, as a comedy writer. And that doesn't happen to everyone there. A lot of people there have done a lot more comedy before they get there and they know their voices a little more. But for me, since it was my first real writing job, I didn't, I hadn't fully developed that voice. And that was something that I ended up to being able to develop more after I w had left SNL. So. And I think you've done uh, such an inspiring, I think, job for certainly a writer like me who admires so much of your work, like reading your stuff in, oh, in shouts has been, I mean, it's clear, like there's a very distinct, like Claire Friedman voice, like there's a Claire <laughs> Friedman, like humor piece, like, you know, a Claire Friedman humor piece when you read it. So I think you've done an amazing job defining that. Um, so I know we're running up to the top of the hour and I know you have to get going but um i'm wondering like are there any particular projects or anything that you want to plug for, for our listeners to check out um i think i would just love everybody to tune in to Jesus and marrow on showtime we premiere on february 3rd twice a week uh it's a very cool and very different type of late night show that doesn't focus that much on politics which i think is sort of refreshing in this world so if you uh, if you guys have showtime check it out We'll definitely have that in the show notes. And uh, Claire, I know you uh, definitely have mixed feelings about social media and everything, but uh, where can people <laughs> find you online? Sure. Well, if, so I don't, like I said, I'm not a big Twitter tweeter, but uh, you can follow me on Twitter where I share some of my New Yorker articles at Claire G. Friedman and same handle on Instagram. And those are the only two platforms that I think that I'm on possible i have a snapchat account but i haven't used it in a long time well maybe tiktok if that's something you're TikTok on as well i don't have but i'm hearing is incredible and that all of like gen z is going to replace us in all of content and storytelling so i'm yeah. getting closer and closer to getting on tiktok <laughs> just I'm to see what the competition is i hear these yeah. young 
people are creating incredible content with no budget. So slightly alarming as a professional. For uh, sure. And it's like kind of cool, but yes, alarming for sure. Um, <laughs> well, Claire, thank you so much for, for talking. I know you're a very busy person, so this means a lot, but um, really enjoy this conversation. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your journey. It's definitely been fascinating to hear about it. Um, and I guess that will be the end of the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, Claire, any parting words, any words of wisdom or advice you want to impart? No, I guess, I mean, I guess really just if it's something that you're passionate about pursuing a career in comedy and you're going to take the risk to go for it, I'll, I would say fully go for it. That's, that's the thing I would suggest. Love it. Love it. Well, Claire, thank you so much. Uh, tune in next week. Thank you so much and see you guys soon. Thanks for listening to the Brave Maker podcast. Subscribe. Give us a rating and share with a friend. Brave Maker is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our work is funded by generous patrons like you. Support the podcast with a tax-deductible donation at bravemaker.com. Brave stories change the world. You are the story.